0: Hey, this is Adam, and you're listening to Experimental History. Okay, so here's what this is. Um, I'm an experimental psychologist. I got my PhD in social psychology in 2021, and um, then I turned kind of weird. I started writing this blog called Experimental History on the Internet, which is a weird, it's a bad name for a blog that is about psychology and about science more broadly, but that's what it is. Um, and uh, and I was like, you know, if, if 500 people read this, like that would be cool. Like this is a little thing just for me. And as of today, something like 32,000 people read it, which is really exciting. And so thank you uh, if you're one of those people. Um, I assume you are, if that's why you're here. So um, so at, at eventually I started recording uh, voiceovers to go with the posts that I was writing on the blog, um, both because people uh, sometimes rather prefer to listen instead of read, and because in my other life I'm an improv and stand-up comedian, and so it's fun for me. Um, and so that's all been cool, but it's not super convenient to listen to that stuff like in the Substack app, um, and people prefer to have it on uh their podcast apps. And so that's where this is going. So this is also an opportunity for me to go back into the archives and do sort of a greatest hits of experimental history, re-record the audio all nice. I have a little audio cave in my closet here. Um and uh, and bring back those those posts. Um so I'm going to start by doing that and then eventually catch up to myself. And so each new post will come out uh on experimental-history.com. It'll also be here. So if you're subscribed to either of them, you will uh you will get them. Um And oh, and if you haven't listened before, the way I do this, I do this in one take. And so I screw up, uh, I go on tangents. You'll see. Um, so I'm going to start out with one of my earliest posts that um, when I finished it, I was kind of rushing to finish it. I was at a conference at the time, and I was like, ah, I don't know if this one's that good. And it is now the second most read post that I've ever done, even though this went out originally, I think, to like 300 people. Um, some Someone like rediscovered it on TikTok like six months ago, um, and it just like exploded, uh, And which it just goes to show you don't know how the Internet is going to work. No. Um, Never try to make it work the thing that work the way that you think it should work. Just do the things that you love, and it'll all work out okay. Um, that's the lesson. This post is called "Good Conversations Have Lots of Doorknobs." Uh, subtitle or Spider Man is my boyfriend. If you're familiar with with more recent experimental history, uh, I was still working out the kinks earlier on, so these posts are a little bit different. Um, Uh, I hadn't quite realized that you could, like, do funny, like, subheadings and stuff on the internet. You know, that technology was still, that technology, that technology was still um, sort of foreign to me. Anyway, here's the post. As always, one take. I used to perform in an improvised musical comedy show where we could burst into song at any time. You'd be doing a scene about, say, bringing your boyfriend to Thanksgiving for the first time and having to explain to your parents that he's Spider-Man, and all of a sudden the pianist would thunder out some chords, like, da 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 and now you're singing something like, Spider-Man, Spider-Man, that's who I'm dating, Mom and Dad, will he eat? Do not ask, he will not remove his mask. Doing this on the spot is really hard, and the trick that kept us afloat was called take and take of focus, meaning that whoever was singing had to keep going until someone jumped in to take the spotlight from them, which should happen quickly and often. Though it's nearly impossible to invent a whole funny song on the spot, you can probably fire off a verse, your teammate can come in with a chorus, and if you can do that twice and toss some harmony on top, the audience will go wild. For me, learning take and take suggested a solution not just to songs about Spider-Man, but to a scientific mystery. I was in graduate school at the time, running studies aimed at answering the question, do conversations end when people want them to? There's a link to the paper there. A short answer is no, but it's more complicated than that. I watched a stupefying number of conversations unfold, some of them blooming into beautiful repartee. One pair of participants exchanged numbers afterward, others collapsing into awkward silences. Why did some conversations unfurl and others wilt? One answer I realized may be the clash of take and take versus give and take. Givers, that is people who do give and take, think that conversations unfold as a series of invitations. Takers think conversations unfold as a series of declarations. When giver meets giver or taker meets taker, all is well. When giver meets taker, however, giver gives, taker takes, and giver gets resentful. Why won't he ask me a single question? While taker has a lovely time, she must really think I'm interesting, or gets annoyed. My job is so boring, why does he keep asking me about it? It's easy to assume that givers are virtuous and takers are villainous, but that's giver propaganda. Conversations, like improv scenes, start to sink if they sit still. Takers can paddle for both sides, relieving their partners of the duty to generate the next thing. It's easy to remember how lonely it feels when a taker refuses to cede the spotlight to you, but it's easy to forget how lovely it feels when you don't want the spotlight and a taker lets you recline on the mezzanine while they fill the stage. When you're tired, or shy, or anxious, or bored, there's nothing better than hopping on the back of a conversational motorcycle, wrapping your arms around your partner's waist, and holding on for dear life while they rocket you to somewhere new. And that's a thing that takers can do. Takers are especially valuable when you add more minds to the mix. Some of my research is about how turn-taking works differently in two-person versus multi-person conversations. When it's just you and me, taking turns is easy. You go, I go, repeat. When it's you and me and another guy and another guy, who should talk next? It's often unclear, so we all stand around waiting for someone else to take their turn or to invite us to take ours. Givers try to salvage these situations by turning them into laborious seminar discussions. Why don't we all say what we thought about the movie? Takers, on the other hand, simply make conversation happy. That movie sucked, and anybody who liked it can fight me. When we're all standing on the perimeter of an empty dance dance floor, takers are the martyrs who will launch themselves into the middle and do the stanky leg. While takers deserve some redemption, givers deserve some scrutiny. On day one of Improv 101, they'll tell you not to ask questions in a scene because it puts undue pressure on your partner. Hey, what are you doing? Uh, I'm making things up in an improv scene. Similarly, refusing to take the spotlight in a conversation may seem generous, but in fact can burden the other person to keep the show going. What's up, parenthetical, what's up is one of the most dreadful texts to get. It's short for, hello, I'd like you to entertain me now. And asking your partner question after question and resenting them when they don't return the favor isn't generosity, it's social entrapment, like not telling your friends that it's your birthday and then seething that they didn't get you cake. Neither givers nor takers have it 100% correct, and their conflicts often come from both sides' insistence that the other side must convert or die. Rather than mounting an inquisition on our interlocutors, we ought to focus on perfecting our own technique, and the way to do that, I think, is by adding a bunch of doorknobs. When done well, both giving and taking create what psychologists call affordances, features of the environment that allow you to do something. Physical affordances are things like stairs and handles and benches. Conversational affordances are things like digressions and confessions and bold claims that beg for a rejoinder. Talking to another person is like rock climbing, except you are my rock wall and I am yours. If you reach up, I can grab onto your hand and we can both hoist ourselves skyward. Maybe that's why good conversation feels a little bit like floating. What matters most, then, is not how much we give or take, but whether we offer and accept affordances. Takers can present big, graspable doorknobs, like, I kind of get creeped out when couples treat their dogs like babies. Or they can not do that, like, let me tell you about the plot of the movie Must Love Dogs. Good taking makes the other side want to take too. Like, I know, my friend made me, My friend asked me to be the godparent to their schnauzer. It's so crazy. Wow, this part works way better in text. It's so confusing with the parentheticals and the quotes. Um, I'm giving examples here. You get it. Similarly, some questions have doorknobs. Why do you think you and your brother turned out so different? And some don't. How many of your grandparents are still living? But even affordanceless giving can be met with affordanceful taking. Like, for instance, I have one grandma still alive, and I think a lot about how the, all, all this knowledge she has, like how to raise a family, how to cope with tragedy, how to make chocolate zucchini bread, and how I feel anxious about learning from her while I still can. Um, uh, my grandma will actually make multiple appearances in experimental history. Um, looking back, it's it's interesting that, like, I wrote this while I felt that way. Uh, she passed away in uh, December of last year, and uh, anyway, you'll see her come back. There's some recent evidence that what makes conversations pop off is indeed the social equivalent of doorknobs. You might think that the best conversationalists wait patiently for their partners to finish talking before they start concocting a response in their head. It turns out that we like people the best when they respond to us the fastest, so fast, mere milliseconds, that they must be formulating their reply long before we finish our turn. Abundant affordances allow for this rapid-fire rapport, each utterance offering an obvious opportunity to respond. A few unfortunate psychological biases hold us back from creating these conversational doorknobs and from grabbing them when we see them. We think people want to hear about exciting stuff we did without them. I went to Budapest when they're actually happier talking about mundane stuff we did together. Remember when we got stuck in traffic driving to D.C.? That's a link to a paper that's about that. That, by the way, was one of the, 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 um, one of the earliest papers I ever worked on as a research assistant. We overestimate the awkwardness of deep talk. That's another paper. And so we stick to the boring, affordanceless shallows. Conversational affordances often require saying something that's at least a little bit intimate about yourself, so even the faintest fear of rejection on either side can prevent conversations from taking off. That's why when psychologists want to jumpstart friendship in the lab, they have participants answer a series of questions that require steadily escalating amounts of self-disclosure. You may have seen this as the 36 questions that lead to love. Number one, do you love me? No. Uh, The main reason we don't create more affordances, however, is pure egocentrism. When we just say whatever pops into our heads, we may think we're making craggy, climbable, conversational rock walls when in fact we're creating completely frictionless surfaces. For example, I'm thrilled to tell you about the 126, it was 126 at the time, I think it's more like 154 now, escape rooms I've done, but my love for paying people $35 to lock me in a room blinds me to the fact that you probably do not give a hoot. I may even think I'm being generous by asking about your experiences with escape rooms when my supposed giving is really just selfishness with a question mark at the end. Enough of me talking about stuff I like. Time for you to talk about stuff I like. There is no known cure for egocentrism. The condition appears to be congenital. The best we can do is offer our interlocutors all sorts of doorknobs, ornate French handles, commercial-grade push bars, ADA-compliant auto-open buttons, and listen closely for any that they might give us in return. The best improvisers, like the best conversation partners, have very sharp hearing. They can echolocate a door slightly left ajar, waiting for a gentle push from the outside. So the next time you find yourself slogging through a conversation that just ain't working, remember this little ditty. Give and take, take and take, it's about the affordances that you make. Do not be a social slob, use conversation no door knobs. Thanks for listening. I'm Adam. This is Experimental History. Okay, that's the, that's the first one. I mean, not the first first one, but that that's the first of the greatest hits. Um, thank you for listening. Uh, Experimental History is made possible by you, literally. Um, this blog, this podcast now exists because the world is full of generous people who are willing to support it. Um, uh, you can be one of them by going online to experimental-history.com and signing up for a paid subscription in return you get um uh both a world where this exists and you get some mystery posts um which are sub- for subscribers only including um three posts that i did it's basically a crash course in negotiation so i used to teach negotiation at columbia business school to mbas i got a little um tired and conflicted about that uh, and um uh, and so I put together a post that's like the principles of negotiation for regular people. Uh, so that's one of the mystery posts. Um, but really, I mean, writing this blog and, um, and the people who have who have supported it ha- has changed my life. It's also changed the way that I think about the world, that I didn't realize it was possible for that to happen, that there were people out there who just like stuff like this and um, that, that they're willing to like put their dollars behind it. And so thank you. Thank you for that. Um, uh, if if you can't afford it, don't want to forever, that's fine. That's totally okay. Uh, the, the, the main stuff will always be free to everybody, um... And you could also, uh, if you like experimental history, you can help out by uh, by sending it to somebody or by leaving uh, a, a five star review on your um, podcast platform of choice. Tell them, um, t- tell them that uh, that it you know it restored that listening to this podcast restored sight to the blind um, and joy to the joyless, um, and, and, <laughs> and that'll help. Um, okay, the music you're listening to um, is by Brandon Rojar, uh, who's on Spotify as Peak and Pit. Um, I am on the internet as experimental-history.com, and thank you for listening. I'll be back soon.